Turn with me to Micah chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 15 this morning. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 779. Our sermon title is The Remnant. And the key words for our worshipers in training are remnant, victory, and vengeance. The way a story ends is tremendously important, right? We are all too familiar with great stories that have been ruined by terrible endings. I'm looking at you, Lost. Likewise, a story with an excellent ending often gets remembered as excellent overall, even though there are likely some non-excellent aspects of the story along the way. How you stick the ending really matters. And so today, as we continue through our series in the book of Micah, we come to an ending of sorts. We've come to the end of a second cycle of sermons that Micah preached to the nations of Israel and Judah somewhere between the years of 740 and 700 B.C. And thankfully, brothers and sisters, Micah sticks the landing. The ending, like the rest of the story, doesn't disappoint. In this second cycle of sermons, which began in chapter 3, Micah accuses Judah's leaders of such wicked practices, you'll remember, that he had to resort to cannibalistic language to describe their crimes against their fellow man. He says, because of these things you have done, the temple, the dwelling place of God, shall be left in ruins. But as we've come to chapters 4 and 5, Micah's tune has changed and he assures God's people that judgment will not, despite their desert of it, be the last word. God is just and merciful. And he is going to restore and rebuild the temple that is soon to be destroyed. Not with brick and mortar, but in the church. His people being built together as living stones. He promises to bring together people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation and make His dwelling not simply near us, but among us and in us. And this restoration would bring about a number of unexpected reversals. And that those who were once cast aside and unwelcome, they shall be invited and brought into the kingdom of God. Those who were held in captivity shall be made free. And He would bring all of, the, all of this about through the birth of the Messiah who would, we saw last week, be born in Bethlehem, a tiny, insignificant little town in Judah. And through this Messiah, God would rule over His people and bring the brothers together who have been scattered and make them to dwell secure and provide them with faithful leaders. And as we come then to the end of this cycle, we now see a glorious resolution bestowed upon the people of God. The ups and the downs through the twists and turns, the victim of chapter 3 has become the victor of chapters 4 and 5. So let's read these verses together beginning in verse 7. Let's read them now. Then the remnant of Jacob 
shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land, and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off all sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. I'd like you to see two things with me this morning from these verses. First, in verses 7 to 9, we will see that the establishment of the church, God's people, has a a dual or a a two-sided effect in the world. And second, in verses 10 to 15, we'll see that God purges His church from threats within and protects His church from threats without. So first, in verses 7 and 9, we'll see the dual effect the church has in the world. These verses in verses 7 and 9, remind me of Proverbs 24, or 26, 4 and 5. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You have these back-to-back statements that at first glance kind of seem to cancel one another out. How can Micah on the one hand say that the remnant while among the nations shall be like dew on the grass or like a gentle afternoon rain shower and then turn around immediately on the other hand and say that the remnant while among the nations shall be like a lion biting, devouring, and tearing everything in its path to pieces? Well, the description that Micah gives here matches well with Paul's description of the church in 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17. Paul says that to those who are being saved, the church is the aroma of life. To those who are perishing, it is the aroma of death. Commenting on the paradoxical nature of these descriptions of God's people In Micah 5, one author writes, The remnant of Jacob will at the same time be a source of benediction and a fomenter of misfortune, a channel of salvation and a cause of punishment, an instrument of hope and of tragedy. Depending on, I suppose, the perspective upon which the person looks at the church will determine how the church smells. So let's look at each of these realities in turn, this dual effect. First, the blessing of the church in the world. In verse 7, Micah compares the remnant of Jacob to dew and rainfall, much needed and precious commodities in the agrarian societies of the ancient Near East. 
And we've seen Micah use this word remnant a few times already. First, he used it back in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says God would gather the remnant of Israel and set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. He used it again in 4.7 when God promised to make the lame the remnant and to strengthen those who had been cast off and make them into a strong nation. And now he says here that the remnant through the deliverance brought about by the promised Messiah of verses 1-6, to he says this remnant shall dwell in the midst of many peoples and he likens them to gentle rain on a thirsty grass. Judah would be scattered. Micah is clear in chapter 4, verse 10. They were going into exile, going to Babylon. And so he says that even though judgment is coming, exile is inevitable, once Messiah comes, the remnant, the remainder, the small number of God's people who were in fact true followers of Yahweh, committed to Messiah, they would, in the midst of their scattering, become like refreshing rain to the nations. This promise transforms, in a sense, and extends Isaac's blessing over Jacob in Genesis 27.3. When Isaac blesses Jacob there, he says, May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. In the promise made through Micah, though they're not merely to have the dew of heaven, they are to be the dew of heaven, bringing life and renewal to all whom they meet. In Jeremiah 29, we find God's command to the Israelites living in exile in Babylon about how they were to live. He says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That was to be their aim even in exile. How much more hope do we have for this kind of faithful living when the promise of Micah 5-7 has come to fruition? In the coming of the Messiah, God has made His people like dew on the grass, refreshing rain showers upon a sun-scorched earth. Brothers and sisters, is that how we live? Are you refreshing rain to those who are outside the family of God? Do you live in such a way that brings honor to the name of Christ among the nations? When unbelievers see your life, do they see one who lives for himself? Or do they see one who lives for another? Does your life invite people to taste and see that the Lord is good? Is your life a sweet-smelling fragrance of life to those around you? Given the sinfulness of men and, and the inherent limitations and adequacies and truthfully explicit purposes of social media, 
we are living in an ever-increasingly unstable system. Civility and kindness are nearly entirely things of the past in our society. And that's true for many professing Christians in our day. Not just them out there. But is it true for us in here? We bite and devour all who don't agree with us completely. We look for the smallest things to criticize in order to demonstrate our superiority over our fellow man. What about you? Are people refreshed after an interaction with you? Or are they worn out, belittled, embarrassed, and distraught? God says that through the blessing of Christ, we should and we do bring life wherever we go. But that brings up the second effect that we see in this first observation about the church's life is the second effect that the people of God are also somehow an aroma of death to those who are in the world or to some perhaps who are in the world. Here's an example of how, what this looks like, I think. The, the prophet Daniel. We see this in his life during his time in exile in Babylon. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or probably better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were, in a sense, an aroma of life, right? If you know the story well. They lived faithfully before God. And unlike nearly every other person we meet in Scripture, except for Christ Himself, they never give us any cause for offense. There really isn't anything stated negatively about these four men. They were courageous, bold, honest, direct, humble, obedient, respectful, and God blessed and prospered them. And, they, and through them brought blessing and prosperity to those around them. And yet, how were they perceived by some of the people amongst whom they lived? If you read through the book of Daniel, in chapters 1 and 2, they don't really have any targets on their back. But chapter 3 brings great trouble. Nebuchadnezzar, the self-righteous, pompous king of Babylon, makes a giant image of gold, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, and he commands all the subjects of his kingdom to bow before it in worship of his own splendor whenever they heard the ceremonial music play. Certain Chaldeans took the opportunity, knowing the quality and character of these men, and they came forward maliciously, we're told, to accuse the Jews, declaring to the king that even though every man, every other man, would bow before the image, there were three men whom he had appointed to high positions of power within his kingdom who did not bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king, of course, is filled with rage and brings the men forward and asks them, if the accusation is so, they confirm its truthfulness and he threatens to end their lives by throwing them into a fiery furnace to which they reply, burn us up. 
our God will save us. And even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, we will not bow. You likely know the rest of the story. His failed attempt to incinerate the men led to a strange outburst of praise from the pagan king to the king of kings. Now we're not told what happened to their accusers, but I doubt it was a pleasant experience. These men, these three men, had been an aroma of death to those who hated the Lord. We see a similar thing happen in Daniel's life. After the Babylonian Empire is brought down by the Medes and Persians, King Darius commands at the suggestion of more evil men hoping to bring Daniel down to an early grave. He commands that all people in the kingdom should stop praying to anyone other than the king himself for 30 days. Well, of course, Daniel continues to pray to the king of all kings as he had always done. And the cowardly men rat him out. And so he's thrown into the lion's den. And you likely know the rest of this story as well. The Lord shuts the lion's mouths and Daniel is brought out of the den the next morning completely unharmed. Now, unlike his companion's accusers, we do learn what happened to Daniel's accusers. The men who plotted against him, these wicked men and their entire families, we read, And Daniel 6, were thrown into the den with the lions and torn limb from limb, their bones broken before they even hit the ground. And so while we ourselves ought never to be the, the, the cause of stumbling for someone because of our arrogance, and the gospel message is one of hope and life, and mercy, and love, while these things are true, we must understand that those who love darkness will hate the light, will hate the message of the truth, and will hate us. The message of the cross and all who walk in its shadow reek of hardship, self-sacrifice, and submission to those who worship ease, self-satisfaction, and power. This is an undeniable reality. And so in Micah, we see that the people of God shall be perceived as a great and mortal threat to their enemies. We shall be, we're told, as a roaring lion to be feared and hated by those who hate the light. This is, of course, like verse 7, a reference to another of the patriarch's blessings upon the people of God. Jacob, having been blessed by Isaac with the dew of heaven, turns at the end of his life to bless his sons. And in blessing Judah, specifically, he says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares rouse him? We must remember, though, that this fighting, this devouring that the church does over its enemies is not with flesh and blood and bone. It's not through the sword of steel, but the sword of the Spirit. 
It is a battle with spiritual firepower, not earthly firepower. So church, let us live faithful lives of obedience to God, trusting that to some we may be an aroma of life, praise God. A welcome invitation to find refuge from the storms of life and the peace for which they have longed their entire lives. For others, sadly, we shall be an aroma of death, prompting nothing but fear and hatred and rejection and persecution. But we need not fear, for God, we are told in verse 9, shall give us the victory over our enemies and deliver us from every evil thing when all is said and done. So that is the dual, the two-sided effect that the church has in the world. Well, secondly, we see that God protects His church. He protects His church from threats within and threats without. We see this in verses 10 to 15. He protects His church from enemies within and enemies without. So on the one hand, these verses tell us that God will deliver His people from the things to which they are so tempted to cling instead of clinging to Him. He will go to whatever lengths are necessary to reduce Israel to nothing in order that she may learn once again to live upon Him as her all-sufficient portion. On the other hand, in verse 15, we see that God stands opposed not merely to the sins of the disobedient nations, but He is opposed to the nations themselves. Those who do not obey will be brought to nothing and left in ruins. So these verses should serve as a, a, a very strong, frightful, terrifying warning to unbelievers. But they do serve also as a sober but welcomed hope to believers. So let's look at each of them turn and then we'll finish up so threats within, verses 10 to 14, we see that God protects and purges and purifies His church from all that would lead her away from Him. He promises His people that He is going to cut off the nation's sense of strength and power. He will decimate their sense of security and protection. He will eliminate their pretense of wisdom and insight and all the false gods in whose service they lived He would destroy. The Lord promises to come in severe action against the things that draw away the affection of His people, that draw away the trust and dependence of His people. The severity of this action can hardly be overstated. Six times in as many verses, the Lord makes plain that He Himself will come against these things. And He makes 12 statements concerning the destruction which He will bring about in order to purge His people from their self-trust. Everything was to be undone. The horses and chariots represented their sense, of, their sense and their source of strength and power. Their cities and strongholds represented their sense and source of safety and security. Their sorceries and fortune tellers represented their sense and source of knowledge. Their carved images the pillars, the works of their hands and their Asherah images, 
all stood in the place of pagan gods whom they served. And God says it was all to be brought to nothing on this day in order to promote true and lasting holiness among the people of God. The import for our lives should be immediately apparent. Believer, what are the things to which you are tempted to put your trust in rather than in God? Are you aware of the links to which God will go to bring about your sanctification and progress in holiness? God is the master surgeon who will patiently, thoroughly, penetratingly cut away the cancer of sin that plagues your soul. He is the silversmith who will intently and carefully sweep away the dross as it rises to the surface of his precious metals in the fiery furnace until he sees his perfect reflection in you. Sanctification, indeed, is often very painful. It is hard to be laid low, to be humbled, to be brought down, to be reduced to nothing and left without any hope in my own ability to save or sanctify myself. But as Bunyan said, he that is low need fear no fall. Only once I am down may I then begin the journey up with God as my rock and my refuge. And this is what he promises to his people. Verses 10 to 14. In verse 15, what of those who do not obey? Those who remain opposed to God will be brought to nothing. We see here God protects His church from threats without. Because you see, what He says here in verse 15, He doesn't bring them to nothing in the sense of the previous verses. The previous verses, God lays low His people in order to purge them of their various addictions and idolatries in order that they may fully rely upon Him. No, it's not simply against their sources of strength, protection, knowledge, and the idols which they serve that God will come in wrath. We're told that God is coming against them, the nations themselves. The the forces of evil that gather against the church will, in other words, not succeed. They will not prevail. They, They will be left in utter desolation. This is what we saw back in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. The wicked ones who gather against the people of God shall be, as it were, beaten into a fine powder, pulverized into dust, threshed into nothing. As I mentioned earlier, these verses serve as a sobering word of hope and assurance to the believer, but they ought to provide deep dread to those who will continue in rebellion against God and His bride. The nations, we read, set on fire by hell who gather against the church are doomed not only to fail in their conquest against the church, but they are doomed in the very continued existence of their lives. Jesus is emphatically clear. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The gates of a city were the place where business and strategy 
were conducted. They represented the plans and the scheming of the place. And so the gates of hell, the very place of scheming and planning against God's people, shall fall to ruin and be overcome and overwhelmed by the church. God, through the church militant, shall conquer every foe and crush every enemy, including death, and He shall rule over us and in us and through us forever. Brothers and sisters, the church has always had those who are arrayed against her. Having said that, it does appear, even as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that for for us believers in the West, there is seemingly an increasingly high chance that we shall experience that opposition to greater degrees in days to come. At least more than we have ever personally known to date. I don't believe the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but there is no denying that our particular culture is running headlong off the cliff of moral decency and biblical spirituality, to put it mildly. The liberal culture within academia or the the leftist culture within academia and Hollywood and the media are sharpening their knives as they prepare to feast on the carcass of what is left of evangelical Christianity in America after decades of capitulation to hell's demands. And I have no doubt that the spiritual casualties will continue to pile up, perhaps for years to come. But perhaps we can, through the strength that God supplies, stand firm. And remember that though sorrow may last for the night, joy is coming in the morning. God does not take it lightly when He sees His beloved mistreated. There is a day coming when the fullness of the wrath of God shall be poured out upon those who mistreat God's bride. And while the judgment to come against those who refuse to repent and turn to the Lord will be unimaginable, there is yet hope even for the most severe God-haters out there or in here. For in the day of which Micah prophesies here in these verses has begun in the coming of Messiah and in the totality of His person and work. And the day begun is a day of reckoning. It is a day when we will all be brought to account. But until the final day, the final, final day, when the fullness of all the promises of Scripture come to full light, the Gospel is free, and it does go forth into all the world, and it calls to men women and children of every age, ethnicity, every socioeconomic status. It calls people out of every sin struggle and it forgives sinners of all kind, including, but not limited to, cowards, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, the lawless, disobedient, ungodly, unholy, and profane. Those who strike their parents, enslavers, adulterers, Practicers of homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, those given to enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, orgies, and all manner of unrighteousness. 
blasphemers, and whatever else you can name. These are the kinds of people that God saves. These are the kinds of people that God rescues out of sin. These are the kinds of people that God forgives. These are the kinds of people like us. The Gospel is going out into all the world offering life, forgiveness, transformation, and healing to all these kinds of people. People like us. The evil one and all his wicked horde are no match for the relentless march of the commander of the armies of the Lord. And so my friends, if you do not know Jesus Christ today, would you turn to him in faith? Would you look to Jesus right now and live? He offers you infinite mercy Why would you choose infinite wrath? He offers you peace. Why choose war? And to my brothers and sisters in the faith, remember this, beloved. The world conspires against us. The world hates us despite the message of hope in which we live. But there is a day coming and is now here when God is bringing swift and just judgment down upon the heads of all who revile the people of God. God will defend with a vengeance what and who are His. And He Himself shall bring about the end of those who stand opposed to Him and His people. Would you pray with me?